0: Well, Greetings this morning in Jesus' name, and it was a wonderful sight to look outside this morning and see that beauty. I suppose that's a relative uh, comment, that um, it is good to see uh, the beauty of the snow and to think of what God's Word says about it. And um, there is that verse that talks about, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. It's a glorious morning, and uh, it's so wonderful to see all your faces here. This is a sensitive subject here um, this weekend, and I'm glad that you braved yourself to come out to hear this. Um, I want to say right up front that in all the conclusions that I've drawn, come to, these are my conclusions. Uh, these are my opinions, save for the scriptures that I read you. I realize that I'm probably walking a tight wire this morning um, and tomorrow, and I'm not expecting all of you to agree with what I have to say. Um, it's just the way it is. It's taken me 30 years, 30 hard years to come to the conclusions I've come to. And regardless of whether you agree with me and what I share with you this weekend, we're going to leave this place, friends. I've argued with my bishop about this subject. Um, I've resisted the Holy Spirit on this subject. So I I know what it's like to, to love something very dearly and have to open my fist and let it go. And so we'll leave the spirit work this weekend with you. If if God speaks to your heart, if God puts his finger on your life uh, in this area, um, leave this place with an open hand. You're not accountable to me. You're accountable to truth. And we're going to try to share that with you this morning. Just for um, some reference, there's been a couple books that have radically changed my life over the years uh, the first one is uh, Confronting Christian Contemporary Music by H.C. Spence. A tremendous book that has been helpful to me. I would encourage you to read it if you can get a hold of it. And um would also say that this man may be warped in some ways just like I am. Uh, he is a human being. He's speaking out of his experience, his study. Um, this is not a Christian book. It's called The Dumbest Generation. Um, fascinating book of where we are today in history. Uh, we're not as smart as we think we are. I'm not as smart as I think I am. And the sooner we can come to that conclusion, the better off we're all going to be. And the last one is Old Light and New Worship. Tremendous book. Um, a lot of my material this morning and the rest of this weekend is based on the study of this book. Which I believe in many ways uh, was taken from the doctrine of this book. So we're going to get started here this morning. I've uh, agreed to an hour of each session, and I hope that um, you can listen to that. I hope that um, you won't be bored, but I'm going to tell you, we're going to go on a whirlwind through history um, this morning and this afternoon. It's going to be fast, and it's going to um, kind of brush over the highlights of biblical history and secular history uh, this afternoon. The title this morning is The History of Music. Bible history and philosophy. Don't let that word philosophy scare you. It simply is the most basic belief and concept and attitudes of an individual or group. It's the study of attitudes and beliefs of of a group of people. So we're talking about the, the beliefs on the subject of music this morning from the Bible and its history. So this weekend, God willing, we are going to Uh, Try to understand that God has the right to determine and tell you and I, his children, how he wants to be worshipped. He has every right to do that. And the only thing we can say to him is amen. The second thing we want to accomplish this weekend is understand church history, to determine the position for musical instruments in corporate worship like we're here this morning doing. The third thing is to understand biblical history to determine the position for musical instruments in public worship. The fourth to understand the ages of world history and how musical instruments coincided with its philosophies. Uh, number five to understand the position held by ancient philosophers in regard to the subject of music, which is very interesting. Number six to understand that music is the tool used to spread ideology, tremendous tool, powerful tool. Um, that that can couch philosophy, ideology, and spread it to the masses very effectively. We want to understand something about syncopation. Number eight: to understand well done studies and their conclusions about the effects of rock music versus no music versus classical music. Number nine: to understand God's position on musical instruments. He used them in temple worship. Therefore, we know that they are not evil. Use them in a certain way. And while we don't use them this morning, interestingly enough, God will use them in heaven. We have evidence of that, which is very interesting as well. So we are to worship God in the way that he has prescribed in his word. For now, this morning, we do want to talk about instruments in corporate worship. And I want to say that what I do in my personal space and what you do in your personal space is different than what we do in this service, I think probably all of you have some kind of instrumentation in your home. You probably listen to it. You probably play it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, depending on how you do that. But I think it is true that what is done at church is all important in preserving biblical worship. It's very important in the study of music that we use all the resources we have to come to the conclusions that we have come to. There is the historical biblical narrative. There is the historical position of the early church and beyond. There is the position of the early philosophers and governments. And there is the position of legitimate science to come to the conclusions. And I think this morning it is the height of arrogance to look solely at my experience to come to a conclusion on the issue of music. We all have had the experience of failing to look to the Bible for direction, uh, we've failed to look to history for direction. Uh, we have the problem of naivety. Um, we are oblivious to the dangers that are around us because we like what we hear. There's a problem of complexity, and I struggled tremendously to try to bring this down to something that we could understand and get a hold of. There is also the lack of honesty in in, in looking inward with men mankind. And there's the failure of not really wanting to know. And if we approach life in that way, with the failure to not really want to know, it's going to take us to a place that we really want to want to be. We must be aware this morning that there is a great danger in confusing mere sensual excitement with true worship. God has the right to say and to know how worship is conducted and what is acceptable to Him. And I'm telling you this morning, it has nothing to do with what pleases me and what pleases men. It has to do with what pleases God. And we have to accept that truth. Music is a form of worship. It often is. And I think it is most dangerous To open ourselves up to corruption in worship. It's it's indisputable this morning that the corruption of worship has been the originator of apostasy. Music this morning is the vehicle that carries and distributes ideology, philosophy, and doctrine to its recipients. Let me see if I can. I don't know if you can see that or not. I'll get to that in a second and I'll read it. I said that music is the vehicle that carries and distributes ideology, philosophy, and doctrine to its recipients. Now, there's a lot of um, illustrations I could use to prove that to you. But I'll use Guy Penrod's quote. And you may not know who that is. He's the man who had hair halfway down his back that sang for the Gaither, Gaither vocal, uh, vocal Band. And he said this. He's an expert in music. He sang for many years. He, he's got a beautiful, tremendous voice. I don't believe that he is a man who we trust. But he did say this. I had it in my heart for a long time to take music and use it like a train to move philosophy or thought or creativity down the track of life. 49 year old man. who's about my age when he said that. And it's true. Music is the vehicle that carries doctrine to the masses. Doctrine is, is not necessarily what's in the Bible. Doctrine is what people see as truth. And we talk about biblical doctrine. But where did music begin this morning? In the time of history. Where did music begin? Who originated it? In Job 38, if you want to turn to that, I'm going to read things very quickly here this morning. Job 38, 4-7. Job says, or God says to Job, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So we can see here that God is the originator of music. Angels existed before the beginning as we know it. And they were praising God at the creation. Now, Scripture gives us a clue as to the origins of of worship in heaven um, and who was involved in that. And we could go to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And we're going to paraphrase. We're just going to to breeze through this. But it says in those passages that Satan or Lucifer was perfect in beauty. He was covered with stones of every type and he sealed up the sum. He had a perfect combination of beauty and wisdom. Interestingly enough, I worked for uh, one of the um, women that worked with Miss America in that pageant. And she told me, she said, one of the things that we use to choose beautiful women is not because they're pretty. It's because they're pretty and smart. And because they're servants. And that's the way Satan was. He was full of wisdom and full of beauty. He had that perfect combination. He was the anointed cherub that covered. He was right near the throne of God. He served God. He had a he had a very exalted position in heaven. He was on the holy mount of God. He walked up and down on the stones of fire. It says he was given ability from the day of his creation to, to, to serve God and to worship God. He was a leader, we believe, a lead musician in the worship of Almighty God in heaven. He was given abilities. It talks about his pipes and his tabrets. He, he, he had, had, The word pipes there has to do with a bezel. It had to do with working with stones. He was covered with stones. So it appeared like he had something to do with with working with stones and working with music. The word tabrets has to do with tambourines. You get in Isaiah 14.11. It says, Thy pomp is bright down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials, the noise of thy music, the noise of thy harps, the news of thy instruments, so it had been brought down to hell. He was deeply... Corrupted in that high and holy position. And he was cast down to earth. And I believe in his fall to earth, in his wisdom and his magnificent, his talent that was given to him at creation went with him in his fall. He was the essence of who he was. Therefore, when he became corrupted, he retained some of the things of the character that God gave him. His character, his personality, his great wisdom, his great wealth, his intimate knowledge. Of true worship, his religious skills, his knowledge of musical skills. All this went with Satan in a corrupted fall. When he became corrupted, he fell. He took what he had with him. And I think that this morning is why we see such a twisted form of worship. And such a twisted form and use of jewelry. Satan's men this morning are experts in their fields. They can speak well. They can sing very well. They are experts at making money. They know how to appeal to the carnal nature of man. And they make captives. And he makes captives and prisoners of men. And like their master, they are not open to opening the house of their prisoners. says that in verse 17. They that see thee, in verse chapter 14 of Isaiah, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake his kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, and opened not the house of the prisoners? Satan's men and their music hold men captive and refuse to let them go. Anything this morning that's connected to Satan keeps its prisoners and refuses to let them go. Whereas the music of Almighty God is associated with letting the captives go free. It's a beautiful thing to belong to God and to find me free of my vices, find me free of myself and sing a song that reflects that testimony. There's a strange passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 4 by a man by the name. I was going to say Lamech. I don't believe it's Lamech. He was singing to his wives a little ditty. It's the first paralytical poem. Genesis chapter 4. I just want to see his name here. I think I have it wrong. Yes, it was Lamech. He said unto his two wives, He's boasting about a sevenfold revenge on a man who had wounded him, and a man that had only hit him. And he talked about the things that he was going to do to that man. It was written in a time of great violence on this earth. It came before the flood. This morning I want you to see that men, the world, men of the world sing what they feel and they think and they value. Lamech valued violence. And he sang about violence. And you'll see in your own life and in your own experience, you'll sing about the things that you value, the things that you love. So every man, number one up on the chart, every individual has a song that unintentionally but inevitably leaks or sneaks or radiates or overflows from the well of his heart. You'll find that to be true. Number two, the heart provides the instrument or the melody for this song that overflows from your heart. Number three, the thread of music that runs through society will always reflect the condition, the time, and the direction of the culture. Number four, the world sings what it feels and thinks and values, and so does the church. Number five, music drives a narrative for the direction of society. Music is a major tool to unite the world in doctrine and purpose. The song of heaven will contradict that doctrine. Lastly, music as an instrument used to perpetuate doctrine. Now in Deuteronomy 32, there's a song written by Moses, and I can only refer to it quickly. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. I love to read it. And if you look at that psalm and what Moses is saying in it, And compare it to the song of Lamech. You see a picture of the song of the world and what it values. And you see the song of God's men and what they value. Give ye ear, O heavens, and I will speak and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness to our God. What a tremendous song. And you notice the song of Lamech. It was a Lamech. It was a song about himself. The song that Moses, the man of God, wrote in Deuteronomy 32 was about God and his greatness and his wonder. Moses used this song to guide the children of Israel through their wanderings in the wilderness. And he used it to encourage them. It was sound doctrine, it was pure, it was holy, it was written in a very deep way that people could take this and use the music to embed this message into their heart to carry them through the difficulties of life. Moses had a song in Exodus 15 when the horse and rider fell into the, fell into the sea. Again, this was a song that was sang by Moses and Miriam. And they sang about the greatness of God and what he had done for them. I will sing unto the Lord. For he hath triumphed greatly, the horse and rider hath he, felt, hath he cast into the sea. It's the first place in the scripture of an impromptu worship service. You'll also notice Miriam doing some things in that passage where she's using a tambourine and they're dancing before the Lord. This is an example of what we're talking about how worship in the tabernacle and worship in the temple did not allow those instruments. But Miriam had it, and it probably came from Egypt. And they sang that song, and I think it was a holy song. But it was not appropriate to sing in God's house. Satan follows the same pattern. He will use his music to couch doctrine in a beautiful package, a beautiful wrapping. And he'll hand it to us. And we'll eat it if we love the things of the world. God used music to carry his doctrine. He used Moses. He used Aaron. He used many people to couch true doctrine in melody and harmony and rhythm. And he used it to sink it into our hearts. And Satan will do the same thing. Now, interestingly enough, Moses invented instruments of worship. The Bible tells us that. In Exodus 19, we have, um, I'll get back to that Moses um, invention, but in Exodus 19, we see God picking up an instruments. And I know that there's people um, that, that consider instruments to be wor- uh, something that we shouldn't be using. But it's interesting that Exodus 19, just before the giving of the Ten Commandments, God picked up a trumpet and he used it to call the people to assembly. And they worshipped him there. Musical instruments have the ability to speak. That's why they often use trumpets to call armies together. That's why in in the uh, tabernacle, in the temple, they used trumpets to call people to assemble. They blew them over the sacrifices. But musical instruments have the ability to speak. And I have a quote here somewhere, I may get to it later, of a musician that scoffed at the idea of taking training to learn to play a guitar. He says, I can make my guitar say anything I want. That's interesting. Instruments have the power to speak a language and speak an attitude and transport it very easily into a person's heart. Jeremiah 10.10, 10, the warning came from Jeremiah. He says, learn not the way of the heathen. We have to be very careful about that when it comes to instruments and how they're used. Now in Numbers chapter 10, I'm not going to read all this. Numbers 10, 1-10, to 10, God ordained the use of two silver trumpets. In verse 2, he told Moses, he said, make the two trumpets of silver out of one piece. And they were used to call the assembly in verse 3. One trumpet call spoke and called only the elders to the tabernacle. There was an alarm uh, spoken about in this passage that, told the children of Israel to stand up, pack up their tents, and the eastern tribe was to go first in their going out um, on their journeys. The second alarm um, was a call for the south tribe, the southern tribes, to stand up and start out on their journeys. It says that the sons of Aaron were the only people that were allowed to blow those trumpets. They were also told to blow an alarm in battle for God to remember them. Something God told them to do. Something God had the right to tell them to do. Something they needed to do in obedience to God. Finally, in verse 10, they were to blow them over their burnt offerings and sacrifices of their peace offerings. I am the Lord, it says. So the commandment was from God. This is how you are to worship me. Take these trumpets that were made out of one piece. Moses invented them. And blow them over your offerings and sacrifices. God told him, make it straight. The reason God told them to make it straight is because he did not want them to bring the, the instruments of Egypt into their worship. God forbid Egyptian influence in public worship. The Egyptians had curved trumpets. God said, make it straight out of one piece. Moses was divinely guided by the Holy Spirit to invent a trumpet that was different than the ones in Egypt. Josephus says this. Moses was the inventor of the form of their trumpet, straight and a little less than a cubit, about 16 inches long. Josephus also said, Moses reshaped existing trumpet styles. He became the inventor of the trumpet used by the Israelites. Now remember that it seems like Lucifer may have had this position in heaven of inventing instruments for the worship of God. Now God is putting the assignment on Moses. He said, invent this, make this trumpet unique to the Israelites, and blow it over my burnt offerings and sacrifices. God in his holiness and in his wisdom begins to speak on the subject of musical instruments in regard to public worship very early on, and he continued this pattern all through biblical history. When it came to instruction of singing or instruments in the tabernacle, there was a simple instruction. There was no choir, as I can understand, in the tabernacle. There was no choir of a cappella music. There was no choir with trumpets. There was no choir. There was no singing. There was absolute silence other than a trumpet playing over the offerings and the sacrifices blown only by the sons of Aaron. Now, we move along in this Study of the Old Testament. And we find that Moses and the period of the tabernacle were drawing to a close. Now worship has been put into the hands of David. And we come to the time of David and we see a transition or a change in how God asked to be worshipped. Israel was no longer in wandering. They were no longer a nation that was wandering. They were no longer nomads. They possessed Canaan. Uh, the tabernacle had lost a lot of its reputation for being mobile. It was now in the land of Shiloh, though it still apparently moved around some. And God had given rest to his people there in First Chronicles 23, verses 25 and 26. And it says that David gave the Levites a new job. You can find this in First Chronicles 16, verses 1 to 6. That David appointed the Levites to record and to thank and praise the God of Israel. So now we've got a transition. We've got a tabernacle that is more or less uh, immobile. We've got Levites appointed to sing and, re- and, and to praise the God of Israel. We also have the, inst- the institution here then of Asaph and company that praised the Lord with psalteries and harps and symbols. It says that Benaniah and Jehaziel praised the Lord with trumpets continually. Now I ask you the question, why did David go beyond what God had told Moses to do in regards to worship of Jehovah? Did he do that on a whim? Did he do it because it was his own ideas and this is the way I feel I ought to praise God so I'm going to do it and I want you all to follow me? Did David simply seek to enhance worship, make it better, make it feel better, make it more pleasing to those that were doing it? We find out why David did this when almost 300 years later, during the reign of King Hezekiah, who was seeking to restore pure worship to an apostatized people, he went back to the Word of God, to find out how God wanted to be worshipped and he wanted to restore the temple to pure worship after years of apostasy. And he did what every person needs to do when they're returning back to God. He got back to the word of God and discovered where they had sinned and he led the people to repentance. Now turn with me to Second Chronicles 29. This is very important. 29, verse 25 to 27. And it says, And when he had set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, and of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for so was the commandment of the Lord by the prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David, and the priest with the trumpets, and Hezekiah commanded the, to offer the burnt offerings upon the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets of Moses and the instruments ordained by David, the king of Israel. So it seems like this happened when the ark came to Jerusalem. There was specific instruments uh, mentioned here. And I want you to note who made the commandment that they should be used. And I want you to notice the law of three witnesses. It was not David that instituted this. It said that God had said it. He had told Nathan and Gad. They all verified it together. There was a law of three witnesses in the scripture. There was three witnesses that said, this is how you are to worship me. And David obeyed. God said it. Nathan verified it, God solidified it, and finally David carried out. God was faithful in giving instructions in the Old Testament how he wanted to be worshipped. Hezekiah sought divine authority. David sought divine authority. Moses sought divine authority on how, he was to, how God is to be worshipped. And I believe Lucifer did as well. David had no authority to alter God's worship program. Moses sought and heeded divine authority and he bowed to God's desire of how to worship Him. And Hezekiah was revived. He sought out God's clear commandment. And it gives us a clue about repentance and revival in our lives. Do we go back to the Anabaptists to find out how to revive a, a dying church? Do we go back to books? Do we go back to some prophet? Or we'd go back to God's word. I think the answer is clear. 1st Chronicles 16:41 and 42 calls them God's instruments. Instruments of the Lord. When they brought back to the ark the ark to the temple to the tabernacle, the instruments of God, the instruments of the Lord were used. Now when David was dying, he gave instruction then to Solomon about the worship to Jehovah. David counted the Levites, there was 4,000 that praised the Lord with instruments which I made. And that is the word for invention. David told Solomon, I made these, I invented these. Just like Moses invented the trumpets, David invented those instruments to praise the Lord and they were called the instruments of God. All of the temple functions and plans were given by God to David, including musical instruments. In 1st Chronicles 28, verse 11 to 13, David said, "The Lord made me understand this in writing by His hand upon me all the works of these plans." David received a divine commandment just as Moses on how God would be worshipped, and appears that this is so by the scriptures. We've got to move quickly through this. Solomon carried out the authority and the words of David when the ark was carried into the temple. It says, when the priests came out of the holy place, there were singers, cymbals, and instruments. 170 years after David, Jehoiada, in 2 Chronicles 23.18, said they did this with rejoicing and singing according to the order of David. 300 years, 380 years after David, Josiah was revived and he commanded the Levites to look back to the writings of David for authority on how they were to worship in their revival of Jehovah. Zerubbabel, 550 years after David, he instituted the worship in the second temple according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. Ask the question, if God's men of the past regarded God with such respect, what does it say about the spirit of this age when men think that they can bring any instrument they want into the temple of the Lord and play it however they want in the house of God? What does it say about the respect of this day and age for God Almighty and how he tells us to worship him? Matthew Henry agrees. In the Constitution of Israel, there was to be an everything divine... In this matter, David was unique in his leadership of Israel when it came to worship. And God made him so. Now, there was in the worship of Israel a synagogue. And you all know something about that. The temple was in Jerusalem. As I recall... Men had to go to Jerusalem twice a year to worship Jehovah. They were required by the law. But only a handful of Jews lived in Jerusalem. So weekly on the Sabbath day, just like weekly on the Lord's day, we go to church. Jews went to their synagogue on a weekly basis on the Sabbath. Now, what did a synagogue service look like in regards to this subject at hand? Would some, somebody mind getting me a drink? My um, throat is getting pretty dry here. Thank you. What did a synagogue worship service look like in regards to this subject at hand? What did it look like in comparison to the temple and the way they worshipped there? Synagogues were local centers of religious life for the Jews every Sabbath. Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Paul went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And by the time of Christ, synagogues were located all over the then known world. They were everywhere. Wherever there was Jews, there was a synagogue. And they worshipped there on the Sabbath. Sacrificial system and ceremonial elements of worship did not take place in the synagogue. They took place in the temple. Synagogue worship focused more on the reading in the expose of Scripture, and they prayed there, and they sang psalms. One of the stark differences between the temple and the synagogue was that God commanded that instruments be used in temple worship, but they never made their way into the synagogue. So when the Jews sang on the Sabbath in the synagogue, they sang a cappella music, the way it's been. Thank you very much. Professor Gerardo in Columbia University in the 1850s said this. In regards to the synagogue, its, instrument, its, its worship was destitute of instrumental worship. There was none. No instrumental music ever entered into the service of the Jewish synagogue. No, I don't think that's true today. But in ancient times, that was true. According to scholars that study those periods. Robert Douglas, in his book, Church Music Through the Ages, said, instrumental music was not known to have been used in connection with synagogue worship. It would appear that the elements of Christian worship that was under the authority of Christ and his apostles were built on the pattern of the Jewish synagogue. And this included the a cappella singing of the psalms. There were three reasons why worship of the synagogue became the foundation for early Christian worship. The first one was that we can see that by the time of Christ, the worship of David's day was already naturally fading. It was, it was moving in the direction of synagogue worship. Number two. During the dispersion of the diaspora of the Jews, many never ever saw or observed temple worship. Therefore, most of them worshipped in the way that they were familiar with. Jewish worship was most familiar in the synagogue to most of those people. Number three, after the destruction of the temple, the Jews in the disparity of the loss of their temple actually forbid singing. And you can see a classic case of that in the Psalms where the people of Babylon came down to the river and they said, why don't you people sing us one of the songs of Zion? We'd like to hear you sing. And they said, we've hung our harps in the willow. We, we can't sing the Lord's song in a strange land, and neither can we. Jesus himself testified of a change in the methodology, methodology of music. We've been going on here a bit. Let's now stand and sing a chorus. Sing that song, Oh, How I Love Jesus. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing. It's worth, it sounds like music in my ear. Be seated. Thank you. Now, if God gave Lucifer instruction, and God gave Moses instruction, and God gave David instruction that carried him through the Old Testament, carried the the Jews through the Old Testament into the church age, we have to ask the question Does the New Testament give any instruction about instruments in worship? I would suggest to you. That as God revealed his progressive will through Moses and then through David, so he would also continue to unveil the revelatory pattern through one who was called Jesus Christ. And I'm going to touch on this just a little bit later of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. That's found in John chapter 4. But here are the instructions that God gave his peculiar people. His people, who are called kings and priests of God. And I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. We, we should take time this morning to to read through this passage and expound on it. We, we could have used the whole, whole message this morning to do that. But I want to just touch on two verses, one in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. We have to ask ourselves a question. Did God fail to give the New Testament church instructions on how he should worship if he in the past always gave instructions on how he would be worshipped? So in Ephesians 5.19 it says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. If we take a few verses up up from that, maybe verse 17, it would talk about not being drunk with wine, but being filled with the Spirit. And I can tell you this morning that I could take you into a lot of nominal churches this morning, and I could show you that principle being violated all over the place. People who are drunk with music, people who are falling on the floor, people that are shouting, barking like dogs, laughing like demons drunk with something be not drunk with wine and that word wine could mean a lot of things be not drunk with wine but be filled with the spirit the spirit of god is orderly the spirit of god is simple the spirit of god asks that no one speak before the other person sits down there's no interruption when we when we're worshiping god one person sits down the next person speaks that person sits down the next person speaks But in the charismatic church and the things that are happening there, there is a drunkenness that is very unique. And it's not unique to God's people. It's unique to something else. But we are to speak to ourselves. This is what God is telling us through Paul. Speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And sing with grace. There's only one person that gives grace. And it's the grace of God. We are to sing with the grace of God in our hearts. And we are to sing to the Lord. Lamech sang to himself. He sang about himself. He exalted himself. I could tell you a humorous story, but we're going to wait on that. About those who sang to theirself and not to the Lord. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. These are the instructions to the church. And the word you is plural. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. We are to speak to ourselves. We are to be being talking back and forth through song to each other in the congregation. And it's to be through teaching in admonition in biblical and godly wisdom. Congregational singing, like synagogue worship, is to be together. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with bringing a group up front here and singing and ministering to this group in song. But the emphasis on the New Testament is to sing congregationally. I want you to think about the nominal church, the false church, the apostatized church, the sleeping church, what are they doing? The congregational song is dead. The congregation cannot sing their songs because of the rhythm pattern. There's a person up front, and they're singing it all by themselves. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the spoken Word, this I believe is the amplified, let the spoken Word of Christ have His home within your hearts, dwelling in your heart and mind, and permeating every aspect of your being. When we do that, and then we sing, and we sing together, and we're all doing that, That is tremendous worship. But you know what it requires me to do? It requires me to live at home and talk to myself about all this. And to reason with myself and to think about God's word. And it requires you to do that too. And then we come to church and we do that together. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The pulpit help says this. We are to sing psalms. Not necessarily with the article in front of it. The psalms. But we are to sing psalms that are laid out similar to the psalms. Perhaps the character of the psalms. The hymns are probably congregational. Praising and glorifying the Trinity in all of His characteristics. Then there is the spiritual songs or the odes. There are short poems of songs set to music and possibly even involves some more elaborate songs sung by one person for the edification of the group. But it must be spiritual. If you have the Spirit and He has permeated your being and His home is in your heart, let that song pour out of your heart. That is the instruction of the New Testament. It seems like it's connected with remaining sober and maintaining the wisdom in what the will of the Lord really is. And that cannot be me falling on the floor this morning and rolling down this aisle and laughing and carrying on and you all doing the same. That is not wisdom. That is not order. The first commandment is to know with wisdom what the Lord's will is. And second, to sing those songs And it is not hard to understand that. What is a little more difficult to understand is is the face value of the last part of the verse. To make melody in your hearts to the Lord. Now what's interesting is the word melody means to twitch or to twang. Now... It's been a number of years ago, but there was a Mennonite college that all of a sudden their eyes lit up. And they said, we finally found the passage where God commanded us in the New Testament to bring a guitar to church. And let's twitch and, sang, twitch and twang with our music and sing. But I ask you the question, how do I twitch and twang a guitar in my heart to the Lord? It also means to rub or touch the surface. But it doesn't say to do this with your fingers. It says that this action is an action of accompaniment in your heart. And you're to sing to the Lord as a congregation. Perhaps it's the difference between saying thank you with your mouth and saying thank you with your heart. And you all know the difference. The latter is far more authentic. But we are to sing together the psalms and the hymns and spiritual songs, songs that are doctrinally pure, With a heart that is redeemed and pure and thankful and joyful. And that is the accompaniment with the voice as we sing to the Lord. This is authentic accompaniment. God has not left us without witness on this matter. He has instructed us how we are to worship him. There was a man from the potter's house that recently visited our church. And they do a lot of tongue speaking, a lot of booming, a lot of banging in their services. And he said, do you know why I come over here? He says, because your music is so beautiful. And he says, it takes a lot of skill to do what you do, and I love it. I reminded him of what I'm preaching here this morning. He just kind of hung his head. He didn't know what to say. I want to look at just a few phrases out of 1 Corinthians 14. We've got 15 more minutes. 1 Corinthians 14, you can turn to that. I'm going to glance through this very quickly. And lay my eyes on the verse. Verse 10. There are many voices or there are many languages in this world and none of them are without significance. If I don't understand, it says, Paul says, if I don't understand the one that speaketh, he becometh to me as a barbarian or a foreigner. If the trumpet... Gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself into battle? If there is no distinction between the sounds of the pipe or the harp, who is going to know what is piped and what is harped? It's common sense. We understand that. He goes on to say, I going to lay my eyes on the verse here. Well, I'll just tell you. Paul says, I will sing and pray with the spirit and with the understanding. I have to be able to say amen to what is said. Otherwise, I am not strengthened or edified. This is verse 15 to 17. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, it talks about false apostles transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Satan himself is transformed into an image of light. That word transformed is the word meta schema. Two words, two Greek words. The idea is this. When we're talking about transforming into an angel of light, it's pretending to be a Christian and then using that platform of pretension to deceive For satanic purposes. It may be done knowingly or unknowingly. Now there's another Greek word. The word morph. It's a word that describes how one should worship in spirit and truth. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. His outward actions were consistent with that claim. He said it and he lived it out. What he said lined up with what he lived. Jesus laid aside his right to be equal with God and with his actions he became a man. Jesus claimed with his mouth to be a servant and then his actions washed the disciples' feet. A man's actions will reveal what he really believes. Think about that. What I say doesn't really matter. But what I do in regards to what I say proves what I really believe. What a man worships will also be shown by his actions. And true worship must be void of hypocrisy. Now I say this carefully and I hope I'm not treading on someone's sacred cow. Forgive me if I do, but I can say with my heart that if I let myself, I would love this man's music. I would, I would adore it. I would listen to it all the time. Bill Gaither doesn't smoke. He doesn't have tattoos. He's clean shaven. He looks something like a Christian ought to look. I can't say that for his wife maybe. But we can see his metaschema. In his inability to discern between the children of God and the children of Satan. When you put your arms around a homosexual... And pretend that they are children of God just like you're a children of God. That is meta-schema. That is preaching and teaching and singing the word of God while you're loving the things of this world and its confusion. Bill Gaither, I'm afraid, in my opinion, this is my opinion. You can take it or leave it. He is using his music to unite people who shouldn't be united. And he has done so much to unite things that should not be united. He is within him, I believe, personally. In my studies, in the conclusions I've come to. He has within him the spirit of ecumenicalism. And I don't know how I could sing beside a person, a man, who should be a man who has hair down almost halfway down his back. How, you know, I I look at that and I used to question it. How can that man sing such wonderful music? And unite what he unites. And divides where he shouldn't divide. And sing beside a man like It caused a lot of questions in my mind that confused me. Those who are truly morphed into the image of Christ. Blow trumpets with a certain sound. And I'm telling you this morning, I have a lot to grow in. I'm not sure where I'm going with music. But I know where I'm not going. I don't know if that makes sense to you. I know where I can't go. And I'm not sure what the future defines for me. I'm still figuring that out. You're still figuring that out. But those who are truly morphed into the image of Christ. Use their trumpets in a way that blows a certain sound. Their hearts agree with their mouth. They worship in spirit. The spirit of God and in truth. They sing and preach with the understanding. Their heart. Is clearly correlated with their mouth and their actions. I believe this morning that the false and worldly church, the meta schema, will play a major role in the final rebellion against Jesus Christ. And may our music this morning be a reflection of sincere and authentic Christianity. We worship. What we know. Jesus told the woman at the well that a new way of worship was coming. He was referring to the way David worshiped. And he was looking forward to the way he would now guide the worship process in his worshipers. He told the woman at the well in John 4 that those who worship him in the future would not worship in a certain place. They wouldn't need cathedrals with beautiful towers and, and a lot of etching and golden pictures. They wouldn't need that. They wouldn't need a certain place to worship. But they would worship, not with instruments, they would worship Him wherever they were and wherever they were together and they would worship in spirit and in truth. And He told this woman that the Father is seeking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In verse 22 of John chapter 4, he told her, you worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, Jesus said. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? He said, whoever shall drink of the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. We can safely say this morning that those who eat and drink of Christ in true spiritual worship will never hunger and will never thirst. They know when they are done worshiping what they truly worshiped. And I have a lot of questions in today's environment, today's churches. Do they know who they're worshiping? I don't believe they do. I understand when people walk out of a rock concert, concert, which incidentally might include one of today's religious services, due to the syncopation they leave with unresolved tension and questions in their mind created by that unique beat and some other things that are going on with the music. And I'm told that those who go home with those questions and that unresolved tension in their minds are extra vulnerable to sexual sin because they need something to answer the question that was created by the music. We worship Who we know. We don't go home feeling that way. If our hearts are in tune and we have truly worshipped God. We go home with our question answered. We go home with attention released. We go home in peace. Jesus said my sheep know my voice and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. We can know what we worship. I want to talk about our hymn books just a little bit. And point out just a couple of the features. We are to worship in songs and hymns and spiritual songs and we are to admonish one another. We have a tremendous blessing in our hymn books because as we sing, we're singing about purity. We're asking God for the blessing of being pure in heart, pure in God, heart, oh God, help me to be. And it goes on down through that poetry, through that hymn, using the rhythm and the harmony. And we're admonishing one another to be pure. There's a song called Keep Thyself Pure. Take time to be holy. We're encouraged to be followers of God. Down in the valley with my Savior I would go. The shady green pasture is so rich and so sweet. God leaves His dear children along. And we take our experiences alongside that song. And we say amen to it. We're encouraged to be sober and careful. There's a song called, How Does a Fool Walk? Christian, walk carefully. Somebody follows you. If we're thinking about what we're singing in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we're being instructed. And with our voices, we're instructing each other. There's songs about wisdom. There's songs about the doctrine of separation. I want to live... Above the world, though Satan's darts with mere, are, 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 uh, me are hurled. Maybe we need some songs that are written to correct the doctrine of the harlot church among uh, that 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 is influencing our people. Songs about how 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 Jesus is the Christ and God is the Father and Mary Mary she doesn't come into this picture. And we need a line to contrast Buddha with the beauty of Christ. All these things are pressing on us and affecting us in ways that I can't describe to you. But we need songs that take the experiences of life and contrast them with the truth of the Scripture. There's songs in our books that talk about light and darkness. The need for discernment. There are songs that remind us of our tendency to be apathetic. Songs that remind us that we need to be filled with the Spirit. Come, gracious Spirit, heavenly dove. Hover over me, gracious Spirit. It is reflecting a neediness of our hearts that we need the Spirit of God to fill us. Songs about submission. Songs about marital love and commitment. Happy the home when God is there. So many blessings we have in the three or five or six hymn books that we have. If we sing it, as God commanded us to, and worship in that way. You will notice that in each hymn book, we are exposed to, to 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 doctrine of different slants, and it comes in all directions. And we need that. Each comes in a different slant, and yet each contributes to the whole of the doctrine that we need to embrace if we're going to get to heaven and get through this age when you have a well-rounded system of music in the church that broadly supports and strengthens the doctrinal position, you have a real blessing. And I'm telling you, we'll get to this maybe tomorrow evening. The shallowness and the thinness and the lack of depth to today's music. And not only is that present, but they're constantly changing the songs so you can never let them embed themselves in your heart and you forget about them because there's so many new ones. What are you learning in those songs? And you understand this morning what happens when that system is laid aside and it's replaced with something else. Are we aware if that's happening? We must make sure that when we add a song, that it doesn't replace something else that's precious. I'm not saying that every song this morning should cover all the doctrines but rather the sum total of the contents of the song we sing should strengthen and support all of them. We need to bring this to a close this morning. We will soon see in the next message the position of the early church fathers when it came to instrumental music in the church. In the church service, I should say. They decried the harp and other instruments as culture of the heathen. But I want to say this morning that I protest that harps and musical instruments are necessarily instruments of the heathen. If those are the reasons that we reject instruments in public worship, I'll say it this way. The early church fathers believed that instrumentation belonged to babies and immature Christians. But if that is the truth, and if we base our doctrine on something false, then I have to say that heaven's going to be full of immature children and babies. Because there will be instruments there, and that's pretty clear. I protest this morning the notion that a cappella singing is the purest form of worship, for if that was the case, all of heaven will be singing a cappella music. And we know that's not the case. Because there are those in heaven who are harping with their harps. And they're singing a song of redemption of the one who has redeemed us unto God. Why do we do this morning what we do? I can only tell you this, and I don't understand it all. We do it because that is the commandment for this dispensation that we live in. We see it biblically by the silence of the New Testament. And it is confirmed... For a thousand, for a thousand years after Christ in the church. For a thousand years, yea, for almost 1,300 years after Christ, there was basically no instruments in the church. They sang a cappella music. We need to be careful this morning that the decisions we make have sound biblical reasoning Lest we leave some excuse for those who are looking for a loophole that they ought not seek for. And I can only tell you this morning, we do what we do because God told us to do it that way. And we're safe that way. This afternoon, we'll look at the position of instruments by the early church fathers. And I don't consider this to be doctrinal. I simply consider it to be a fact. And I think you'll enjoy that study as well. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for clear instruction from your word. Thank you for the hymns that you've given us. And thank you for the instruction that you gave us. We know that you have not left us without witness. And not le- left us without a commandment to walk through this dark world. And walk through the confusion. Through the darkness. And through deliberate um, manipulation of the worship that you've commanded us. To, to worship you with. We, we're walking through that. And we're watching. And sometimes we're confused. And sometimes we, we make difficult decisions. And yet we know that you've given us clear witness. May we follow that in obedience. We pray in Jesus' name.